We have our first sponsor. If you guys have been watching our Instagram account, you've probably seen it. One of the coolest things that Precision Camera offers is what's called a virtual showroom. What you can do is log into their website at precision-camera.com. And right on the first page there, you'll see a link to the virtual showroom. You can go in there and schedule an appointment. And what you'll do is a video conference with a salesperson on the floor. And these people deal with all levels, all camera brands, all the time. And you're going to be able to tell them your level of experience or the person that you're buying for. And you'll be able to tell them your budget. And based off of that, you'll be able to narrow in on what is the best camera for what you have going on. If you don't have time for a video chat, there is also a text chat option. If you have a quick question about a product, you can type in your question and somebody will get back to you very quickly. If you decide to do that and you decide to buy a camera, we got a good deal for you. With their sponsorship of the show, they've also given us a coupon code. If you go in, set up your account, create your purchase, get to the checkout screen, you'll get a little field on the checkout sheet that asks for a coupon code. And what you want to put in is wild and exposed. And what that gets you is $50 off of a $500 or more dollar purchase. We're super excited to have Precision Camera as a sponsor. Now on with the show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. Here we are at the beginning of season four still. Thank you all for staying with us. We've got Jason Loftus coming to us from from You want me to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> you know best where you are. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no tricks here today. I'm I'm coming to you from Ogden, Utah. And Mark Raycroft joining us from, from Ontario, Canada, where it is feeling like winter for the first time in a while. Still pretty mellow here in Wyoming. Because we've had a couple of good storms and then we've had some really mild weather. But with the warmer temperatures always comes those sixty mile an hour winds, so it's kind of a double edged sword. And we do need moisture this year for sure. We're being joined tonight by a guest from the East Coast. So it's very laid out where he's at, Joe Sobolewski. Joe, welcome to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Hey, thanks. And, and right off, uh, definitely thanks for having me on here. Uh, love this podcast. Been a fan from the beginning. So to get on here is an honor. Put it that way. Thanks for listening to us. And, and really, thanks for giving us your time and uh, the opportunity to talk about something different. We spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the Rocky Mountain West and Alaska and you know, the Canadian Rockies, that kind of thing. And this will give us a, an opportunity to kind of reach out. Mark can't help himself. We got to, I'm not even going to say it. He's making faces. If you would like to see the face he's making, join us on YouTube. I'm not making, I'm giving you content. I'm just, we, are, we do antlered stuff so much. Tonight will be different. Right. I thought so you that, wanted me to you know, mention the specific kind of antlered stuff, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try to get okay. through one podcast without it. We'll see. Okay. okay. <laughs> Just one. Let's make it epic. But Joe, 
<laughs> there it is, right out of the gate. Joe, just to get us started, what is your favorite yep. ever outdoor experience? Favorite ever. <sighs> Does not have to be photography related, just best experience you've had in the outdoors. Best experience I've had in the outdoors. I'll put the best and the quickest one this way. Um, starting out with wood ducks. We're probably going to go there anyway. It took uh, pretty much the holy grail of wood ducks is getting that jump shot when the babies fly out of the box and was trying for that uh, along with a good friend monitoring a bunch of boxes on several different properties for about 10 years. And uh, my good friend, Scott Moody, he called. And you have to, when you get to a certain point, you check the boxes every day. Because I don't know how much you guys know about the wood ducks, but once one of them hatches, they'll all hatch that day. And then they all jump the following morning. So that's why you have to check every day. So anyway, um, we share things and information, you know, and... uh, he called me up and he said, uh, I got him hatched in the box. Do you want to go in the morning? So after 10 years of waiting, trying to get these shots, and here you got a guy that knows how much it means to you. And for him to be that unselfish and to sit out there with him, both set up the cameras and get the shots. Um, the actual part of them jumping take, is over in two minutes. But to see that and share it with the good friends, knowing you both been working on it that long, was pretty incredible for a quick, you know, experience. Um, yeah, yeah, just a quick 10-year experience. Yeah, no big yeah, deal. Yeah, just a quick 10 years. <laughs> and then how we talk, like I do take people out, guide them for the wood ducks and show them that. And that's what everybody wants. And they think they can just go out and what time are they going to jump out of the box? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You tell them so, they don't do uh, this every day. So they do it every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> nah, nah. And, and since it's happened that first time, I've been fortunate enough. Um, the following year, one of my boxes, I caught them when they were going to jump. So I got to pay him back, call him up. Hey, Scott, you want to go in the morning? You know what I mean? I seen there was three of them in there at least. The other ones are going to hatch. Let's go to be able to pay him back and see that on his face, you know, and we've got it a couple more times since then because we figured it out. Just like you do anything else in photography and outdoors. Um, that's one, one heck of a, an experience. That's one of the first things I noticed on your Instagram. I mean, there's so many feathered friends that you have on your Instagram and great photography. But as I scrolled down, it's like, Oh, Joe's got the wood ducks jumping out of the nest box and if you go back so go to the wild and show notes for today's podcast we'll have the link for joe's instagram and just to help everybody along a little bit joe spells his last name s-u-b-o-l-e-f-s-k-y but look at may 19th 2020 and then proof he had it more than one year may 15th 2018 and you'll see them. He had video as well. And it's got to be one of the cutest things in nature to see these little tiny wood ducks do that leap of faith. And, and they do. And, and that first time, I actually – it and it even happens in a window of like quarter to ten to quarter after ten, the three times that we've got it. 
that's when it's happened. The female comes sticking out of the box and she's just watching, making sure there's no predators, anything else around. Uh, snapping turtles are a big thing in this area or hawks. Um, but she definitely checks out the whole entire area. And when I knew it was happening that first time, I can't believe I didn't uh, chicken out. I was only shooting with um, an EOS R, a whole five frames a second. Um, but I flipped my iPhone and set it on my waders and filmed the back of the screen. So even though if I didn't get every frame, and it's it's a little cockeyed, but I still even got an iPhone video of the back of my camera as I'm shooting the thing. So, which was excellent. And then you can hear my buddy yelling after they all jump. Yay! You know, so. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it's a special video. <laughs> I think I said, I don't know if I said 2019, 18, but it's 2020 and 2019 May. But obviously mid-May is the target time. If yeah, you go back cool. and if you go back and listen to uh, Doug Gardner's podcast, like, what was that? Season two, I believe. Doug talked about filming it for uh, for the networks and just everything that he went through, knowing that he's got that finite window, like you said, and it's it's got to be ready. And he had to be able to catch it on multiple angles, multiple cameras. Uh, so, right. you know, it's a it's a good description. But what you've just described is the same as people experience when they see many other natural wonders for the first time and. I think the the wood ducks. That that is something that I would like to see. They're kind of spooky out here. Uh, we don't have many opportunities to photograph them at all, and to be able to see the nesting birds, they are absolutely like I said. Um, where I'm at in Maryland is the top of the bay, and it's home to a lot of. Um, I wouldn't want to say the original, not the original, but it's huge as far as decoy carvers and all that stuff. The birds are really hunted to the point of being wiped out on the bay by the market hunters. You know what I mean? At the turn of the century back then. So the birds are still extremely spooky. There's a place um, an hour north of me where the wood ducks are fed by this restaurant. And they're in a stream. You can go up and they'll come right up to you. They're park ducks, basically. Um, and there's nothing wrong with getting pictures in a place like that. But where I am... Um, they're definitely wild. I mean, you got to be in a blind. I basically start in January while I go in the marsh in January while it's froze, figure out what I want to use for perches that year or everything and kind of almost set up, I want to say an outdoor studio or perches that will look good for them. And it's part of the marsh that you can't even begin to walk in even with chest waders. So the only time to really set that stuff up is while it is frozen. You break a hole through the ice, put your perches in, figure out your sun, wind, all that, and um, get them coming in there. Joe's putting the pro tips already on today's podcast. <laughs> that's no, yes. that's great advice. You can you can eye up the place, you know, with the thick ice, hopefully. Or anyway, you're not you're not having to wade through mud at that time. And I could see on your Instagram you show some of your setups, so it was neat to see the cattail marsh, your blind, the the snow coming down, and and through your eye what you do. Believe it or not, my wife and I joke. Um, just fooling around with an iPhone video. I put it on Facebook at one time, and it was just putting a stump out there. And I think it had like 9,000 views of me putting this stump in this muddy water in like a couple of days. And I'm like, 
there's nothing else even there. You know, it, it was funny. We joke about it all the time. Hmm. That's be- the best looking stump in the marsh. So For proximity <laughs> in front of your blind. Everybody's trying to, to do it. figure out exactly where that stump was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you, you had talked about, you mentioned Doug and uh, he comes up in this area and photographs ducks in the winter. And we've ran into each other. Just the world keeps getting smaller and smaller. It seems with all of us. And uh, you know, when it's another dedicated photographer, whatever you guys, it's almost like, I feel like I can sit down and talk with you guys. Like we'd be around a campfire or whatever. We're all on the same page, kind of the respect for the animal looking into the challenge of the things. But Doug and I talked a good bit about it. It's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the whole so, premise of our podcast and sharing these experiences and, and perspectives that way. Go ahead, Jason. Sorry. No, you're fine. So so you touched on a little bit too, and it just makes it even sweeter. I mean, 10 years, that's a huge investment in time. And I mean, I felt like Doug was invested significantly when he talked about it for the filming project he did. But, you know, and he did that over a year period, wasn't it? A year? I think he, I think he did it through two seasons to get the exact footage I wanted. If I remember correctly, yeah. he filmed it and didn't quite get it, I think. And then they stepped up for year two, and then everything. Put up fell. scaffolding and everything else, or yeah, something yeah. He was yeah. About that's what I remember. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a neat, it's a neat show. All the stuff he went through to get that footage. Um, but yeah. but to your point, I mean, ten years. I mean that, and it just makes it that much sweeter. The harder the effort we've talked about all the time but even if it's self-inflicted effort you know you try to make it harder it just it, the reward is just that much sweeter and that's true with a lot of things in life right well, but well, when it gets down to that point like jason allow a lot of yours it seems like you're the impression i get anyway is you're getting out of work that friday afternoon or whatever and you're driving hauling ass somewhere for a couple hours to be there in the morning camping your truck putting all that in yeah. Where with the wood ducks, I wasn't necessarily driving that far, but sure, I've worked at that time. I'm a supervisor at a quarry. I'm off right now because I had knee replacement surgery. I don't even know if I'm going to go back, um, if I'm going to be able to go back. Um, but I would put in 12 hours at work, you know, getting up four o'clock in the morning, get off work. And sometimes after the 12 hours, I'm going out driving an hour, throwing on the hip boots or chest waders, going across the river, walking through a marsh to go look in a box and see if today's the day. If not, you go back and you do it the next day and you go from one box to another and all that, you know, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love that. It's just earned that way. So, so 2019 was the first year you captured it or 2018. I'm bad with it. It's either 18 or 19. I've got it but, three times. I would okay. say 2019, and then we got it twice last year. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. But so, so you continuing to monitor boxes and do this and con- hoping to get it every season? Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. And, but we've been hoping for 10 years before that, too. I mean, oh, yeah. No, I get it. That one thing. Um, at, at my work, they own a lot of property with the riverfront and all that. And we're actually involved. There's like a wood duck box program because th- these birds were basically wiped out for their feathers, for women's hats. And now a lot of the property, there's so much development. There is no deadfalls, what they use to den in the trees so that you have to put up the boxes. That's the only reason the, the ducks have came back. Um, 
one of the pictures I have is a Drake going by with a box in the background, just distant. You can just make it out. And that to me is a very special one because it's showing that's the recovery mm-hmm. of the thing. You wouldn't necessarily want a man-made thing, but we kind of corrected a mistake we made by putting all that effort out there and allow them to come back. So I have a number of boxes that I do from my work involved in that program and then on some other properties. Just to clarify for, for our audience, for those listening, when you're talking about them being almost wiped out, we're talking about the beginning of the, the 20th century, early 1900s. Yeah. And the recovery yep. process yep. has been, you know, ever since then. And we had a show um, not long ago where they talk about buying wetland stamps or, or duck stamps because that money goes to enhancing wetlands and, and the effort to bring these ducks back bring these waterfowl back, you know, in the areas that they were native to. And, and all your other subspecies that use those habitats, whether it's sewer rails, you know, it could be a swamp sparrow, anything. You're making all that habitat available for all those animals. Mm-hmm. It's not just the ducks alone. Those stamps are super important. Yeah. Yeah, those wetlands are rich ecosystem, all kinds of birds and and, and, that's, and, that's, and mammal life. And, absolutely. and that's one of the, one of the reasons... Um, my wife teaches ornithology. She's a outdoor science teacher and specializes in ornithology and bands birds. I know a lot about what's going on. I call her the bird nerd. I'm not the bird nerd, <laughs> but there's been a, there's been a decline in all the birds in the whole entire world. The one type of bird that is up in America, especially, is waterfowl. And that's because of the conservation effort put in by places like Ducks Unlimited and the stamp programs. You think about that. That's the only bird that is not just stabilized, but is actually increasing. Yeah, that, conser- that conservation conservation works. And like Mark and you guys have mentioned, it, there's just a side effect that a lot of the other species um, benefit from that from that work. You know, so yeah. If if you're again, we've preached about it multiple times on the show. But if you're a birder, if you're into wildlife, if you're into conservation at all go buy a duck stamp or two, you know, start a collection, Absolutely. buy them for your kids, whatever. It's just, it's all money that goes directly to conservation. So anyways, I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> no, it's an important one and, and, yeah. and become a member of those organizations. I think we should put uh, a DU link in our show notes and stuff for people mm-hmm. to find easily ducks unlimited yeah. and all their yeah. conservation efforts for these very important watershed ecosystems. Yeah. So Joe, let's, Get back to your photography. When did you pick up a camera initially? Um, I pretty much grew up in an outdoor family, and my one grandfather always had a camera. So I was always around it, but his was more um, the outdoor scene, the camps, the people around the campfire, whether harvesting game tastefully, whatever. It was stuff like that. So I was exposed to it at a very young age, um, the 35 millimeter stuff, all that. And then um, when I got into high school, because at that point, all I knew was you took the picture. I knew how to do that, but we sent our film away. I didn't know how to do that part. So I got um, some elective classes with uh, the yearbook and all that. And I put my hand up. I wanted to go in the dark room, figure that stuff out. So I did that part of it in high school and at the same time drug a camera around, um, the film cameras, 
until I guess I was in my early 20s. And that was about the time um, digital was starting to come out. And I'd also got married and had three children and did not have the money to get the equipment I needed that I knew I needed to have. So while I still kept a little box camera around and more or less documented things, there was no wildlife per se. And um, I guess 2007, my father, like I said, our whole family, they're outdoorsmen. My father was diagnosed with brain cancer. And um, we did a lot of stuff out in the outdoors. And I don't know. I probably don't even have to explain to you guys. When you go out there, it's part of who you are. It gives you that chance to unwind, to be able to handle the rest of what the world's throwing at you or whatever. But um, he, um, I stayed with him every day for like 13 months before he passed away. And normally people live about nine months from this form of brain cancer he had. And I definitely needed to get outdoors, but had no interest in harvesting anything after that or whatever. And couldn't take when the season closed. So that camera allowed me to go out there, be out there waiting for the sun to come up. There was no closed season. Could shoot as much as I wanted. It was my escape. It was um, kind of how I dealt with it and got through it. Um, picked up a little cheap rebel for 300 bucks <laughs> and um, went down to this place where there was uh, some ducks with a little kit lens and I was almost embarrassed it's a pretty well known spot I was almost embarrassed to get out of the car because everybody there had their 600 version ones and all this stuff and I just, yeah <laughs> I've been there I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> and uh and um, I took I took my pictures and, and actually it's the same friend Scott uh, Moody. He has um, I don't know what he's up to now, six or seven DU covers. He was the only person in Maryland to have any at the time. And um, I took some pictures with my little three hundred dollar Rebel, and he's seen one of them of a widget, and he's like, "You gotta." That's a cover right there. I was like, what? what are you talking about? Or whatever. But uh, about that time, Ducks Unlimited every year runs a photo contest. Mm -hmm. So I submitted a photo and somehow luckily ended up winning that. And it was like a month later when I got the other shot. And Scott, and just how unselfish he is, he gave me the editor's contact information. You know, and he's like, you got to send him that picture. And so I won, won the DU contest the one month, and like a month and a half later, the editor from DU is calling me up. You know what I mean? I'm thinking it's a crank thing. He goes, well, we want to use your image on the cover with my little rebel, you know, and pay me to do this. So, and, and my gear was nothing. So it, it, that's kind of how I really got into, back into it. I've always been around it, but got back into it. Um, the death of my father and being able to deal with that. It was my escape, my therapy. Still is. <laughs> yeah. Still is. Yeah. I love that story. We talk about it all the time on here, right? We all talk about the latest, greatest, fanciest gear. And, uh, you know, I, I still look at, even though I don't think the 
uh, content of the image may have been that great, but technically they're they're good images, and they were taken with very low expensive, you know, equipment. You know, the low not low quality, but not high end equipment. More um, prosumer type, even not even let, let just consumer type uh, product. You know, right. so to, that's a great point for the listeners. Again, if you're thinking about it, get you a camera, just get out there and start shooting. You'll be amazed at what you can what you can do. So. Absolutely, and I've told a lot, a lot of the people that, and like I said, I'll take people out one on one, and they're kind of making excuse. Well, this is all I got. It, I said, don't say it's all you got. Just get all you can out of it. It's all you need to do, and enjoy yourself. Shoot, you know, I, I, I say it a lot. Um, shoot what makes you happy. You know, and it doesn't matter what the gear is. I, I'm a gear nut. I love the latest, greatest, but very few people ever shoot to the potential of what they're actually holding in their hand. Your camera's not really keeping you back the majority of the time. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> That's a great story. I, I love I love how it spun into the cover for you. I mean, the timing of that. And, yeah, just to jump on Jason's comment there, or to add to it, sorry. Um, yeah, it's it, <laughs> it's great grounding therapy for all of us. And especially, it's timely now. In 2020, last year, 2021 now, we're hoping for a much better year. But we still need ways to de-stress for whatever's going on in our lives. And and wildlife photography is a great vessel for that. And again, no matter what equipment you have, just to go out and have fun. We're here for a good time. Yeah. No matter what equipment, like I said, and there's no closed season. There's times that are better than others. But there's always something. Spring plumage for wood ducks. I mean, that's one species where the drake and the hen are so different. Both are photogenic, but the drake is one of the most striking birds on planet Earth. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see that progression. I, I don't even want to get too far off in the wood ducks. But, I mean, I watch that progression because in the spring, when they're coming through, like I said, it starts in January. But every possible minute I can, until about the first week of June, I'm out there. Period. But you can see that plumage. They actually start picking their feathers out, you know, doing all these different things and going away. But you can watch that whole progression of it. From them coming in, the very first ones come in, check out the boxes, check out the new homes. Then they're fighting over them. There's not enough boxes or whatever. Then the babe, the whole, the whole thing. Sure. And they got such personality. They're, not, they're, they're a beautiful duck, but they have a ton of personality if you spend the time with them. And um, where I said my wife is the bird nerd, and she's, she's traveled a lot birding. I think she's been uh, five of the continents or whatever. And we first started going out. I went on a couple birding adventures with her, you know, out of the country. But not, nothing against the birders, but for the most part, they are – Okay, that's a yellow-billed cockatiel check, and they're down the road to the next one. And they couldn't tell you anything about the bird, you know. It's a numbers game or whatever, but I'm that way, and I know you guys are the same. You could sit there for hours on hours trying to get the right thing. Like, yep. don't you have the? Per I mean, Jason, you got to have the perfect elk shot already. I don't know why you even go. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah, right. And, and, and Mark with the caribou. Why do you guys keep going? Yeah. 
I, I, I'm addicted to the clicking in their hooves. I just like to hear the clicking as they walk past. <laughs> Magical, man. Magical experiences. So we concluded our 2020 podcast year with a questions episode that listeners sent in. I held back one knowing that you were going to be on this podcast, but it was from Up the Creek Photography on Instagram, Ethan Hoggard, and his question is to ask us to explain setups and settings for flying waterfowl. So when you're planning and with your expertise of years of doing this, if you can share with our listeners what you do with your cameras before going out and how you set up for that. Sure. And it's, and it's not just a waterfowl. Uh, I guess I should answer the question first. We could get, it's not just a waterfowl, but I also, uh, I guess before Jason got on, where I talked about I ran into Greg, I live five minutes from Conowingo Dam, where hundreds mm. of eagles come for two or three months every year. For like the last two months, I've been shooting birds in flight almost every day doing the stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, rub it in. It's okay. Another destination well, pro tip this time. Thanks, <laughs> Joe. No, no. But um, it, it's a great opportunity to – everybody has different ways of doing things. I can only tell you what works for me. And it even gets down to your camera when you're fine-tuning it. Um, but your basic settings, you're more or less going to be shooting your lens wide open, whether that's an F4, a 5.6. And you're going, if possible, you're going to want to have 12 hundredths of a second, maybe 16 hundredths of a second as a minimum shutter speed. Unless you're purposely trying to get some blur to it. And that's a balancing act that you get to. Um, how to relate it to, like you see a plane, you see that dead prop, the prop's just stopped in the air. It's not as appealing to see an airplane with it spinning. It's kind of the same way with ducks. You can get those duck pictures or flying fowl where the wings, everything's perfectly stopped. And you get those ones that just got a little curve to the tip or a little motion to the tip. That's that's the fine tuning of it. But it kind of um, breathes some life into the picture. It's still a still picture, but it's showing movement at the same time. So you, you know? prefer to see a little bit of that on the tips? As yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't just Makes look sense. like it's answered and stop. Mm -hmm. And um, people, you know, people look at a picture and you can put two pictures up. They'll know they like one more than the other, but they might have a hard time describing to you why. And that's what I've seen with some of the bird and flight stuff. They'll pick that one that shows that little bit of motion to the wings because the eyes still sharp in both of them or whatever. And they, they can't tell you why, but that's... That's what's going on. It brings a little life to it. It's almost like you're going to see it continue across the frame. Pro tip number three from Joe today. I don't know if we should keep track. It's on a roll. It's good. <laughs> no, that's subtle. It's a visual I'm gonna, appeal. I'm going to put him on contract for pro tips. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, I'll set my camera up um, with the minimum shutter speed of whatever I want, what's available for the light. And the only thing I'll adjust when I'm shooting out there basically is the ISL. So if I know I need 1600s, I'll leave that there. Uh, if I know I need to shoot wide open because I want the background the way I want it to look, 
You know what I mean? I'll put it on five, six if I have an extender. And then I will just adjust for the light with my ISO. And then what we talked about, you don't necessarily need the latest and greatest camera. Have The new cameras are so awesome handling the ISO that that's normally the only variable I will change. Actually, as the bird's coming in, even if it's coming through the lighter or darker area, I'll be spinning that back knob to make it look, especially with the mirrorless. You know, when it's over or underexposed, you're seeing it right there and happen in front of you and not even worry about the other settings. I know I have enough shutter speed. I know my depth of field is right. I'm now on the exposure. You know? That's great advice to simplifies the process. If you know that your shutter speed is set for that and your depth of field, then right, all you're doing is focusing on ISO, what you need to accommodate that. The, the, the other big thing um, that, that I'll tell you, um, if at all possible, I like to shoot handheld. Once again, the latest and greatest bodies help in that respect. I, I, I'm shooting the. Um, so you Canon. work out? I grew up <laughs> on a right. farm. I've always worked, <laughs> you know. But uh, and people say that, uh, oh my God, you're strong. I'm like, no, this. I'm shooting the new. Yeah, you know, I'm new. I've had it since it came out the 603, but it's light compared to what the version one was, and I used to handhold that kind of. Right. So, man, this feels comfortable. <laughs> but uh, if uh, you can get away with hand-holding um, for birds in flight, that's definitely the way to go. The only time I really use a tripod now is um, for the wood ducks when I'm either out in a ghillie suit or in a blind, simply because you're not going to stand there for three hours and hold the camera still, and they're going to see it. Other than that, I'm handheld. Even uh, even big game out um, in Yellowstone anymore, mm-hmm. or whatever you know. If you got the, a good light with the snow, yeah, and with the antlers. So you started. You were talking about starting with that Rebel. What's your setup now? You said the six hundred L three. What body are you L3. shooting? Uh, with a PlayStation. No, I mean um, Canon. Uh, the R5. Okay. The R5. And I actually had um, the R5 and R6 ordered right at the beginning. And once I seen how the R5 handled the ISO, I canceled the order for the R6. Did not see enough of the difference. And um, having that 45 megapixel and also... Um, I hear Mark talk a lot, the uh, two to four hundred, with that built-in extender. With my R5, a lot of times, and I will use the crop mode. I guess it's Michael always talking about the two to the four. I will use. I have a button set up on the R5 to use that 1.6 crop mode right on there, and you're still getting 17 or 18 megapixel file. It's super versatile. Um, now, yeah. what advantage have you found doing that rather than just cropping and post? Not necessarily the cropping and post. The biggest advantage I find, uh, I put a couple pictures up lately. I've been out shooting short-eared owls. Mm-hmm. Those things don't come out until it's dark, basically. Um, so you can pull the extender off, still get a 1.6 crop, and still shoot at F4 versus having an extender 
being at five, six or something. And the advantage, the other advantage is when you crop into that, the focus system definitely works better. It's um, because you're making the subject larger in the frame. I don't understand exactly why you're asking why not just uh, crop and post. But when you hit that crop mode and make that subject larger into that sensor, uh, it definitely helps um, the autofocus system. And I've seen that, especially in the low light. I'd rather just crop and post, but it, and I, and that's, that was playing around with the short-eared owls in the dark. So there's another, another great pro tip. I would have, yeah. I have never heard that. That yeah. is. Yeah, I had neither. Yeah. That, mm, that makes and, a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Other, other than that, the image quality is not going to change. It's just that you're helping that autofocus system. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with the short-eared owls, but those things basically fly like moths. In the dark, you know what I mean? They're all over the place. And um, with the R5, that's another advantage I've seen with it, uh, testing the autofocus system. I took like a Lee Big Stopper, which is, what, a 10-stop neutral, neutral density? You know, there's a reason that thing slides in and out, because with the old cameras, you would focus, shut your focus to manual, slide the glass down, and take the picture. That R5, you can leave that 10-stop in front of the thing, and it still focuses. It's fantastic in the lower light stuff. I haven't. I'm looking forward to getting it out in the uh, – trying to capture the Milky Way this spring, trying to get the full arch of the Milky Way. I've got that 15 to – what is it, 15 to 35, I think? 35, Canon yeah. F2.8. Yeah. And I really want to try that camera – in with the Milky Way because it does seem to have a lot better low light performance. The D850 Nikon that I was shooting before, I still feel like that's got better image quality. Um, mm -hmm. But the low light performance seems to be quite a bit better with the the Canon. Yeah, the autofocus is just phenomenal. I mean, I have you know the One DX series and all that, and um, I don't think the autofocus is even close. I mean, I, I joke with the guys. We go to the dam and you see a bunch of different people. And there's people coming there from all over. So describe describe that because when we were we were talking before, um, describe for us the million dollar fence. Oh, the million dollar fence. I think if you do a search, million dollar fence. Is he hitting you? <laughs> <laughs> the million dollar fence. Uh. The Exelon Corporation, it's a hydro dam. And shad come up in the spring. They actually have a fish lift, which carries the fish up above the dam. They go up north, spawn. And in the fall, they're coming back down through. They get stunned coming through there. And when I say million-dollar fence, um, you can go there from Halloween to Thanksgiving. This year was different because of COVID. But um, normally you would see – looks like a bear jam in Yellowstone. You'll see 150, 600-millimeter rigs sitting up there, you know, 150, 200 people from all over the world, languages you never heard before, shooting these eagles that come in for these stunfish. And there's such a huge concentration of them. The part that I like is not just the fishing. But uh, the interaction of the eagles actually fighting after they've got the fish. 
and then I'm not even sure. It, it almost seems like the mature birds will play around and drop the fish sometimes to show the young ones how to do it, and then the young ones come in and get it. It's like they're out there playing in front of in front of an audience of a couple hundred people. Um, it's a unique situation, you know, for that for that two month period or whatever. It's basically the largest concentration of eagles on the east side of the Rockies. So it's a good place to hone your bird and flight technique. Yeah, sounds I don't, like I it. prefer I prefer not to be around the crowd. Um, in a normal year, like I said, um, I just had my knee replaced. But in a normal year, I would go out in my kayak and go out in the rocks and all that and get some different pictures. And before they open the gates, they give you a 15-second, 15-minute warning to get out of there. Before you go from uh, 30,000 cubic feet to a couple hundred cubic feet and get washed away. So, but you can shoot the 600 from the kayak, that version three even. It's fun. But uh, it's a great place, great place to shoot. And um, we didn't end up here by accident. My wife is a little bit younger, and I think part of uh, her retirement plan is for me. If I have, something happens where I get too old to drive, I think she's just going to drop me off there every day as like a babysitting service. <laughs> drop me off on her way to work and pick me up on her way home. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I'm not going to complain about it. Could be a lot worse things. Yeah, for sure. I'd take her up on it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this year with COVID, what they did, uh, they actually limited the parking. So they cut down the number of parking spaces to cut down the number. Why well, I would get there first thing in the morning two hours before light, park my truck, shoot in the morning, and then uh, call her up about 10 o'clock when the light gets bad, you know, a little too bright. I don't want to lose my parking spot. Hey, come down and pick me up. And because what they'll do, they'll put a guard there. They'll only let one car in as one car leaves. It was either that or they were going to shut it down. That sounds like something I need to go, something I need to go experience. Pro tip number five. Yeah, right. <laughs> Call Joe's wife, leave your car parked there. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't I should say, if you do that, you don't want to come in the fall. You come in the spring, and what I do when I take people out, we shoot wood ducks in the morning, and then um, some shatter going north. And when it's a good year, we can shoot wood ducks in the morning and then shoot eagles in the afternoon or run another hour and a half up and shoot the snow geese migration. So I'm in a pretty good area, even though we got a lot of people around. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great. Yeah, you're right, right. Yeah, right on that eastern flyway. So you're getting a little bit of everything. I'm not sure if you brought it up while we've been recording, but you do guide and you, you yeah. accommodate people for the wood ducks. Yep. And, and what, what we kind of have is uh, we kind of sell it or whatever. I don't know, sell it, but uh, we call it. My wife calls it Wood Duck Weekends. It's just the two of us. My my daughters are older, so it's just my wife and I here. We have two extra rooms. The people come in on a Friday evening. We'll have dinner together, figure out what our plan is. Get up in the morning, like I said, go shoot the wood ducks, and then we'll either come back here for lunch and then make a decision, depending on the migration, to go shoot eagles, go shoot uh, snow geese. There's some owls around different things but uh we do that as wood duck weekends and i that's normally like a one-on-one thing and sometimes i have people that come with a friend and that's fine too two people but um 
the wood ducks, like I say, I'm shooting wild ones, and they won't take a lot of pressure. So I really don't like to shoot uh, at those locations more than two days in a row. I'd rather not take the risk of pushing them out of there. So that's kind of why we do it towards the weekend. And um, as far as the guiding, I take people, um, not this year, of course, because of the virus, but at the dam, it's a, because you get a lot of opportunities, show them how to do the birds in flight. Uh, or go down to another area where we have the diving ducks where I ran into Doug and Doug runs workshops there as well. So there's a lot of neat opportunities. Um, really the plan was to work like another two years and then do it more of a full time. Right now I'm kind of selfish and not want to give up any more time than I am, but I do enjoy taking people out and seeing them get that oh shit moment. Like they got a great shot. They, you know, or they figured something out watching that light bulb come off um, and how we were also talking um, before I guess we came on with, with uh, Chaz. That was one of the reasons I went out with Chaz originally to Yellowstone was to see how he interacts with his clients and does all that because he is an excellent teacher. It wasn't necessary him to show me how to use the camera I wanted to see how he interacted with you because that's just every bit as important when you're offering those kind of things. And he's an excellent teacher. I couldn't think of anybody any better. You know, so that's why I ended up going with him a couple times. Definitely. And then I, um, I'm not sure if you guys know Denise Epolito. She's won uh, Nature's Best a couple times with birds and all. She used to work with another guy already down in Florida for a little bit. But um, I would help her with workshops, macro photography, and all these different things. So, yeah, kind of do the workshop. Want to do more. Wood duck weekends look like a lot of fun. And, and people who go to your Instagram, they'll see all these different species of waterfowl and other birds as well. Just, just the snow geese, the monstrous flocks, the eagles in flight, they can see all that. But I did notice even on your Instagram, the accommodations look pretty cool. There's a whole bunch of gifts or something on the bed. Nice place or Look that way. My, my, I was like, wow. I, my I wife is a very, my wife is a very, is a very thoughtful, very thoughtful person. At one Super time, inviting. we were talking, and she wanted to. She said, "You know, why don't we just uh, move out west or up Maine and start a bed and breakfast in an area where it's a little more friendly for your wildlife photography and all that?" We talked about, it, and then she got to thinking that she doesn't like to get up early. So I said, "How are you going to have a bed and breakfast when you don't even like to get up?" Right. So uh, you serve breakfast but, uh, at noon when the light gets harsh, right? <laughs> yeah, at dinner. But uh, it's neat. People come and then they end up uh, becoming friends. Oh, for sure, whatever. right? You, you know, I'm sure, you meet wonderful time. people. Yes. Yeah. But my point was as well. You could just see it all on your Instagram. You could see the story behind it, the breadth of your portfolio, but also how inviting Wood Duck weekends could be. How much fun you could have with Joe. I appreciate that. So aside from your eagles and wood ducks you have a pretty good variety of not only waterfowl but wading birds kingfishers there's that, a couple kingfishers around yeah some big game my looking through your portfolio on instagram my favorite picture obviously is the uh the kingfisher coming up to land on the no fishing sign that was yeah. gonna tear it down you could not knock it into the plan that any better yeah, exactly. He's going to take it, pitch it somewhere. Like I said, 
my wife, the bird nerd, we've traveled. And um, a lot of the things you see in other countries, like uh, in the UK, a lot of the, I mean, it's a common thing. People will make those signs up where they have kingfishers and put it around. It's just, it's a fun, fun thing to do, entertaining thing to do. So I had to come back and um, try it, you know? It's It'll neat. Sell. Uh, yeah. Like, Today I actually, People love to laugh. To look at that. Yeah. Today I put the one up. I had uh, a pair of wood ducks on the same on the same sign. You know, I'd actually forgot that I had that one sitting around. Um, but I try to put a I try to put a wood duck picture up every Wednesday anyway. Wood duck Wednesday could be Wapiti Wednesday for some. <laughs> or, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Those elk pictures. Some of yours, I mean, just the light in your elk pictures. If somebody had never, yeah, the light in any the of lack his pictures. Of the light. <laughs> and yeah. Most of it, it's the lack of the light. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what light is left, what it's hitting. <laughs> it seems like it's. Well, I appreciate phenomenal. that. Phenomenal. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, I'm a. I am super jealous of you, Joe. You live in a great place for lots of waterfowl, and as you know. Uh, waterfowl is one of my favorite things to shoot, and I don't get the variety that you do, right? I do get wood ducks and I do get mallards, but that's about it, and I'm pretty limited. And so I've I've got lots of plans, and uh, I'm and I'm not joking when I say this. For me, big game is great, but waterfowl is a very very close second. So I might have to come out there and visit you, man, and get some of those cans and some of those those yeah. other. Yeah, the, the situation ducks. the situation we have for um, the diving ducks that's uh, a little less than two hours from me. And what it was there, there was a restaurant at one time mm-hmm. back in the forties, I believe, thirties or whatever. And they used had a long pier out to it, and the restaurant workers started feeding these diving ducks on the Chesapeake Bay there. And then eventually that restaurant burned down, but those ducks were just so used to coming there. And diving ducks just do not see them up close. Yeah. And, um, even the government came in there. That's one of the few places they came that they could actually ban those diving ducks with pretty much ease. Mm-hmm. And it, it still continues there. Um, we go out, put on our waders, actually set in the water, get right down level with them. People come and feed them. The town, it's with the corn or whatever. But... <laughs> They are, they're wild ducks, but yeah, I understand. You know what I mean? Habituate yeah. big time, but it's just such a unique opportunity that you would never get to photograph diving ducks that close in any other circumstance. Yeah. So, um, yeah. they're where they're um, they're wary birds. There's not they're not as spooky. Wood ducks don't even think. They can't have any brains because they just react. You know, they immediately go where the divers. Or just wary. But uh, yeah. you get out there in the chop, and um, especially there, I like, um, I'll go right at the beginning of the season. Like now I've put a couple pictures up. When there's, the numbers are down, it's easier to select an individual and get some decent, um, just individual pictures of them. Later in the year, there's so many ducks, it's hard to pick out a single bird and not get photobombed. Yeah. And then, um, so you, instead of setting up dead center where everybody's feeding them and all, get off to the side, pick out a straggler here and there. And then, um, 
when you get in January, February, we get some really cold weather where everything freezes up. And that's pretty much the only open water where those birds have been fed. They come in there and it's, uh, it can be phenomenal. I mean, yeah. sitting down there freezing in your waders and you feel like you're 150 when you go to get up between the cold water and just sitting there not moving. But to be eye level, eye to eye with those redheads and all, it's uh, fun. Uh, speaking my language, man. <laughs> There's extreme conditions. Um, that's the way I am like with Yellowstone. I, I don't have, I hate to say this, I have no interest in going there in the summer. But in the winter, in that weather, man... Yeah. That is awesome. That is beautiful. I, yeah. Yeah, you need to come back out. We'll we'll go shoot with you. Seriously. Yeah. That'd be fun. I I think we crossed paths when we were out there the one time. Did um, we? Actually, yeah, we were out there at the same time, posting yeah. some stuff. But uh, that's been a couple years ago, two or three years ago now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I hate Yellowstone. I don't hate it. I always love Yellowstone, but you know what I mean. I'm not a fan of going to Yellowstone in the summer just because it's too busy and there's too much going on. And um, this winter is absolutely my favorite time. Matter of fact, the bison post I made recently is that's exactly what got me fired up about it. Was I just the, I love those extreme conditions and all the white snow and yeah, I'm I'm with you. That's a that's a pretty amazing place. So yeah, everybody everybody should definitely go there at least once. You know? Yeah, oh, agreed. Not agreed. in the summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> avoid so joe what where's that location that you'd like to go to that you haven't been able to reach yet well hopefully in june i'm getting to go to the one Spalbard for the polar bears that is something i've wanted to um photograph them for a long time hopefully that'll happen i can fit in a suitcase by the way <laughs> i know it's hard to believe but I've really? been practicing. <laughs> we probably fit in the, about the same size. Yours might be a little, little taller on one. Uh, yeah. Mine's probably a little fatter. <laughs> um, but um, definitely looking forward to that. I think there's eight of us going on that and going on the boat and going out. I just can't imagine. In Spalbard, um, Sure, I like the nice close-up stuff, but I'm way more into the environmental photographs, and I'm looking at your guys' backgrounds. The habitat's so important, you know. Even if even if that wasn't there, I prefer to see that environment. In Spalbard, just um, that ice, those mountains in the background. I just can't imagine being in that zodiac, being eye level with those things. You know, I can't imagine it. You know, it's got to feel very surreal. You know, and definitely, definitely looking forward to that. What an exciting trip. Yeah, man, that's on my list for sure. I know it's on Ron. We've talked lots about it. But. Um, well, a after that, like I said, um, I'm taking a group down to the Pantanal, hopefully, in um, August for the Jaguars and birds. There's a ton of birds there. Um, I'm kind of wondering what that's going to be like because these animals, Animals are going to have a year with no, not quite the amount of contact they've been used to having every year. So I don't know what that's going to be like. Have you heard anything about the fires there? I heard they were extremely devastating. Is it at this point where they've the fires are no longer an issue and whether it impacted where the jaguars are? The guy that um, 
I'm actually using as the local guide. Been talking with him and all. And uh, it did affect some of the area where the Jaguars were. One of the lodges that had um, some ocelots that were coming in pretty regularly, one of them got really – he actually posted some pictures. One of them um, went up in some type of den to get away from the fire, and it got burned up. They euthanized it. They had to. Um, but I, I'm not sure of the extent of it, but I don't believe it's burning any longer. You know. Well, I certainly hope not. I've seen some yeah. amazing images of people from there. I mean, just beautiful animals, those jaguars. And I'm curious of it because, I mean, um, some people talk about Yellowstone and we joke, you know, you see the bear jams and all that. And I've seen somebody put up a picture of Dan the Pantanel and there was like six boats there, all, you know, one area at a jaguar sighting. And from what he's told me and everything, that's typically not the case at all. Far from it. It's no different than Yellowstone. Um, what it is within individual groups, they all go out in the morning. If they find a cat, they will photograph it for like 20 minutes to a half hour. And then they will radio another group and say, we have, because they know what cats are what, kind of. They'll let the, uh, let the other guides know this cat is in this location. And then they'll go ahead and move out, you know what I mean, and give somebody else the opportunity. So you're, you're just not all piled in and pushing the animal to that, that point of being uncomfortable. You know, it's just not worth it. No, we had uh, Sven on from Arctic Arctic Photography Expeditions. And he is, you know, in communicating back and forth a little bit since, he said there's a lot of changes taking place with Svalbard as well. They're not able to have as many people on the Zodiacs. They're not able to have, so a 16-passenger boat is now a 12-passenger boat. 12-passenger really? boat is now an 8-passenger boat. So we're going to see, you know, we're going to see the cost for those trips increase for a while, I'm afraid, you know, until yeah. they kind of get things settled down, which, you know, you pay a little bit more, but you get a more intimate experience. So yeah. there's, you know, there's positives and negatives as well. And I'm sure it'll be the same in South America. They're they're going to maintain some restrictions uh, down there until we we know that everything's kind of under control for the time being. Great. Right. And I don't, I don't know how she would do it. You know, um, they have those floating hotels or whatever that are actually on the river that you stay in and leave it out every day from them. So the capacity is pretty limited anyway, in the Pantanal region anyway, from what I understand. Well, I know the meat of this podcast is all about the Chesapeake area. And I could see through all your great photography, you've traveled a lot. I don't know if we can, if we can or should go down the Iceland rabbit hole, but for such an incredible destination, I have questions and I don't know if we could take five minutes or so and just hear about your trip to Iceland. And for people who are listening, you know, how you planned it, what you found, what you would suggest if somebody's thinking of going to Iceland that they do, your sure. RV looks super comfortable. I know sure. in Iceland for people that have, I've talked to that have been there, it's a lot of driving. What was your adventure there like? Once again, uh, my bird nerd wife, her favorite bird is the puffin. So when we got married a couple years ago, believe it or not, she wanted to go to Grimsley Island, which is, I don't know, a little island off of Iceland that's a couple miles long. A ferry goes out to. Um, we did 
did. It was just her and I. We rented an RV for two weeks. Jumped through a lot of hoops to make sure that we could get on this ferry because the ferry only goes across to that island uh, twice a week with two vehicles. Oh, wow. Yeah. Small. Yeah, it's small. Um, how long a ferry ride not, is that? And how many guys did they have rowing that boat? Oh, well, <laughs> there was a lot hanging over the side, believe it or not. I couldn't <laughs> believe that. Um, It was, I think, if I remember right, maybe a little over a two-hour ride. Okay. Ferry, so you, but... Uh, so you lose okay. sight of the main shore before you get to the island. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. and, okay. and actually, they Same have there. a big marker ball there that is the edge of the Arctic Circle. That that wow. is the highlight of the year for the town. It's a holiday. They go out on a certain day. The whole town gets together and rolls this giant concrete ball another eight feet or twelve feet or however often it changes, because they said within I don't know if it's in the next twenty years the ball is actually going to fall off the island because the Arctic Circle changes. Okay, we got another pro tip coming down the pipeline. <laughs> I mean, I'm always drawn to the Arctic. You're telling me the Arctic Circle's boundaries moving? I didn't know this either, but you can look it up. I will. Um, yeah. 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 Cool. Definitely look it up. Um, they and they're writing me pictures on my Instagram. I believe it's a giant concrete ball. They get out and push this thing, and it's going to be off of the island, uh, Grimsy Island. Look it up, Grimsy Island Arctic Ball. Um, but, uh, she was in seventh heaven with that, uh, that motor home. Um, there's a couple hundred people live on the Island lighthouse at one end. There's two roads on it. One kind of goes the length of it and leave it to Joe. I got the RV stuck on the side of the cliff <laughs> at the end of the road. <laughs> and, um, it was a newer RV and it had, um, like any lock or any spin technology, we had to be back at a certain time. Uh, of course, it happens at the end of the trip. We had to be back at a certain time to meet the ferry. And as soon as the wheels would start to spin in the flat ground, because it just had street tires on this motorhome, that was be it. It would just put the brakes to the wheel and stop. So we were stuck. Nobody else around. I'm down there underneath actually pulling the anti-lock sensors off of the brake calibers underneath. <laughs> To bypass that to get the wheels to turn that and there was three polish guys that were out to see the arctic circle ball and we were within 100 yards of the ball so they i said can you give us a hand and they were like well, we got to get to the arctic circle first <laughs> i mean you could see the thing so they ran down to the ball and stopped on the way back gave us a little push we got things going we loaded them up i'm driving the motor home the three Polish guys, of course, I'm Polish or whatever, and we're motoring through this little town just in time down to make it and back on the ferry. So <laughs> it was pretty cool. So they could all get on and get sick again on their float back to the mainland. <laughs> uh, that's great. So did you love Iceland? I what love, time of year I, did I, you go? What's that? Sorry, what time of year did you go? Um, August. Yeah, beginning of August, and that's right actually when the puffins are leaving the burrows. But, um, of course, everybody knows about the waterfalls and all that. Um, one of the other things I like to shoot is infrared. And 
with all the waterfalls and the landscape, you could shoot all day long. But the motor, the motorhome was great. We only stayed in campgrounds, I think, two nights in two weeks. The rest of the time, we would just pull over on a back road somewhere, boondock it right there, a place that I wanted to be for sunrise, whether it was to shoot puffins or a landscape feature. Had an absolute blast. And um, it's only a six-hour flight. And do you want another pro tip? I will lots if, of those. If, yeah. if you ever happen to fly Iceland Air, the day before your flight, 24 hours before, if first class is not booked, they will send you an email. You can bid it on first class. We bid $1 over the minimum bid and got first class coming and going. The motorhome, you had to turn in by 10 o'clock in the morning. The flight didn't leave till like 6 o'clock. So we were at the lounge with all the good seafood and everything else. But uh, that's something to keep in mind. <laughs> and if you fly Iceland Air anywhere to the UK or anything, you can stop at Iceland for up to 10 days and they don't charge you anything extra or anything else. So you can always include it in on a trip to somewhere else. Good grief. Love it. Those are two. Good. So how many, I mean, did you keep a tally, Mark? Is that like six or seven pro tips? Anyway, yeah, those are great ones. <laughs> Seriously, because they could just spin off. And go. I mean, I want to go to Ireland. I haven't been. I go to Iceland, stay for a bunch of days. Yeah, it, it was a cool place. I, I enjoy shooting uh, infrared. I don't know how familiar you are, you guys are with that. But um, it, it's cool because when light gets crappy for us, it's prime time for infrared. So it gives you another something to shoot during the middle of that. That is nap time, though, Joe. I cannot afford to convert a camera to infrared and disrupt my nap time during the middle of the day in the harsh, <laughs> harsh light. I wonder where he's going with that. All right. <laughs> well... I, I will tell you this. I, I firmly believe that it helped my composition because you cannot rely on color or anything. True. Um, just shooting straight up. I think it really has helped my like environmental portraits as far as the composition. Learning to shoot in infrared. So if somebody wants to try that for the first time in harsh light, what do you have to do to a camera body? You can, they do have uh, screw on filters, but normally take an older camera body and send it out. There's a couple companies that take okay. the infrared, take the filter out that stops it. But um, that's what actually what I did with my uh, little R once the R5 came out. Now, is that costly just for people listening to send a camera? Uh, it's ballpark 200, anywhere between 200 and maybe 350. At the conclusion of the podcast today, of course, we direct people to wildandexposed.com and they can see the show notes and we'll have a few of your images, Laura's images that you'll provide to us. Could you provide a couple of infrared ones so people can see sure. what those look like too? Absolutely. For reference, that's cool. Yeah. Because I, I, did, I didn't notice, uh, they may be there on your Instagram. Yeah. They're further down. It's normally okay. something I only shoot in the summertime because like I said, uh, it, you need foliage. Mm -hmm. And um, like I say, it's normally the downtime for us when there's nothing else to shoot. Right. 
and he makes black and white images, beautiful black and white images. We also know why Ron looks so young. Naps. It's the naps. <laughs> the naps. <laughs> the midday naps. The naps. Your your microphone's off, Ron. I said you can't pick up extra hobbies that disrupt nap time. <laughs> <laughs> There's some people that shoot it, uh, shoot wildlife infrared, a lot of it in Africa, I see. Mm-hmm. Just more out of the day. Did you do some of that? I noticed your Africa content. I don't, no, I didn't shoot any infrared. I just saw the zebras and I'm thinking infrared. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that was before I really got into the infrared. Okay. That was That's a like, We need more time on infrared because we've never had that subject on wild and exposed. No, we might and have I have to, no experience with it. We might have to try it again sometime. Yeah. Yeah, we should we should have you on again and have you just do a discussion on infrared and all that all that it offers, you know? Yeah, we could do something like that for sure. Yeah, or maybe if I get lucky enough to go to Svalbard come back. I'm I'm really looking forward to that trip. Would like to tell you guys about that. Oh yeah, for sure. That'd be yeah. a great add to it for sure. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate you taking the time today. You provide so many pro tips on this podcast. It was fantastic. (laughs) And some of your insights. Absolutely. And some of your insights into photographing birds in flight. Everybody, go to wildandexposed.com. Check out today's show notes. See some of Joe's images and the links to his Instagram. And you can find more of our work on Facebook, on our Instagram, and on YouTube, so we have our audio podcast come out every Tuesday and the video version on Fridays. Please let other people know about our show. Subscribe, follow along, give us a thumbs up, as those all allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.